Are you doing a few things every day that your ancestors would have done, what, 250,000 years ago? Oliver Berkman. He's a journalist, a writer, and one of the greatest thinkers I've had the pleasure of sitting with here on this podcast. People talk all the time about the importance of learning to say no, right? There's a subtext there. They think what that means is if you just learn to say no to all the stuff you don't want to do, you can spend your time doing the stuff you do want to do. It's way harder than that. You have to say no to things that you do want to do. We are wired for racing through things. All of us who are sort of moving at this speed need to experiment a little bit with like what it feels like to just slow down to the speed that things take. Any action that actually brings things into the world involves a confrontation with your limitations. Getting through that discomfort to what lies on the other side is so empowering. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. As a journalist... um, I was quite surprised to read some of the articles you'd written and that the subject matter wasn't necessarily like always about the news or what's going on or it wasn't gossipy. It was quite, I don't know, existential and deep and about regret and life and happiness and these kinds of things. Where did the desire to talk about and to write and research those topics come from in you? That's a good question. I mean, I think early, early when I was a journalist, I was doing whatever I needed to do. And a lot of that was kind of news more newsy, but I've always wanted to try to bring into that kind of daily context um, these big, serious ideas. And I think it's just because I'm fascinated by them. And I think I'm fascinated by them because I, on some level, struggle with them, right? I mean, I don't think anyone, if they're honest, writes about happiness who is just Mm. completely happy all the time, because then that topic is boring to that person. I think I'm probably pretty anxious person going back, less so now, uh, having spent years kind of therapizing myself in public and in the, in columns and books. But, um, that sense that you sort of need to find some secret to address your own issues. And also when it comes to sort of productivity and time management and all those topics, it's like, maybe if I could find the system that would put me in total control of my time, then maybe I wouldn't need to feel worried about the future and, you know, things like that. We're all just sort of um, revealing our deepest uh, issues in the things we choose to focus on and write about. You alluded to it a little bit there, but you you said, you know, one of the books you wrote was called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Interesting title. What was the inspiration? But I mean, you said struggling with unhappiness was was a bit of. A I mean, by the time I wrote that, I was sort of I'd given all these things a lot of thought. I'd written this column for the Guardian for quite a few years, and I sort of noticed this pattern emerging in the in the approaches and the philosophies that really seemed to do something for me and to sort of um, lift my spirits, help me navigate the world a bit more more calmly and effectively. And they were not. Uh, what I call in that book, positive thinking, right? They were not fill your mind with upbeat thoughts and set incredibly ambitious goals and try to push yourself relentlessly towards achieving them. It was actually much more to do with being open to negative stuff and being willing to feel anxiety, insecurity, uncertainty, and the potential for failure and all those things. It's actually a much more resilient way to, um, to be in the world, I think. Plus, it, I guess it's kind of, it, it's the contribution that I can make to the world of self-help and things like that is to bring my kind of pessimistic, slightly sardonic, I don't know, British, Northern, I don't know where this comes from culturally, really, but like 
of a of a field like the self-help industry like just so much of this is rubbish and at the same time the topic that this is ultimately about is is really important and you, know, you can't just dismiss it completely so what, um what would you say are some of the big sort of central misconceptions about how to become happy or what is it that fundamentally makes us unhappy i sat here with mo gaudat who wrote a book about happiness um the, the happiness equation and he talks a lot about expectation management when your expectations are too high and if your expectations go unmet then we're unhappy um and you know in a lot of your writings you talk about being a bit more aware that any lack of productivity or hardship or struggle isn't a sign of our inadequacy as humans mm -hmm. it's very much the nature of a f yeah. full life i guess I mean, yeah, in terms of misconceptions, I think that, that the sort of fundamental one that I was writing about in that earlier book is, is the idea that happiness is best achieved by aiming for happiness. You know, that, that setting out in your life to get happy is, there's something amiss with this notion, right? Happiness is the kind of thing that seems to arise as a byproduct of certain kinds of meaningful activity. But if you make it the, the, the sort of goal of your life, you can sort of bear down on it too much and then it sort of goes away. The book on some level is about um, turning your attention away from happiness and finding happiness that way through sort of the pursuit of reality, right? Through engaging in meaningful activities and we can talk about what meaningful means, I suppose, but, but, not, but not sort of what will make me feel better or best as the, as the, as the sort of navigation aid that you use in life and then happiness coming as a as a sort of a secondary effect of that i think you know the the the, the sort of crassest kind of positive thinking fails just because the human mind does not work like that if, if what you, if you decide that you're always going to fill your mind with positive upbeat optimistic thoughts then every negative thought that creeps in is like a new failure and something to feel stressed about and something to try to stamp out and uh that's just sort of not true to the situation of like who we are, which is a big mixture of mm. all sorts of feelings. So if we're not aiming for happiness then, and we're, we're aiming for kind of the meaning, meaningful activities in the process, what are those, what have you come to learn are the meaningful activities that end up creating the byproduct of happiness? I mean, it's the question and I don't think I've like come to the final answer in, in, in any of this, but, um, I think meaning, it's, it's a really fascinating idea because I think people know in a sort of intuitive way whether what they're doing is meaningful. There's a question that I write about that comes from a psychotherapist called James Hollis, whose work has been really, uh, um, had a real big impact on me, which is to ask of a choice or of a life path that you might be on, whether it's enlarging you or diminishing you. And I don't think this language works for everybody, but for me, it's like, oh, okay. You can tell that there are times when life is not enjoyable, but it's about growth, what you're doing. It's like, it's good that you're doing it and it's meaningful that you're doing it. And then there are times when life might be perfectly fun, but if you really stop and think about it, it's like, it's missing the point somehow. I think one, the sort of an acute example of this that most people will have experience of is if like a friend or a relation of yours is going through a crisis and you're helping them out in some way, you're there to just as some company. Or I, I recall one example when some friends of mine were going through a really awful thing and I was like literally like doing the dry cleaning for them, right? It was just like they just needed help in this kind of way. And you have that feeling of like, 
I'm in the right place here. This is, there isn't something else I ought to be doing now. Doesn't mean it's fun because the whole situation is awful. Doesn't mean it's in great activity because doing someone's dry cleaning is not necessarily a great activity, but, but you know that you're in the right place. And I think that we can hope to have that feeling about quite a lot of the sort of work and other things that we do in, in non-crisis moments. So that's how I kind of think about that. This is a good use of this day of your very limited time on the planet. One of the things that I've used that seems to be pretty correct um, when I'm trying to figure out what is meaningful and makes me, gives me that feeling of like fulfillment that mm -hmm. I'm in the right place as you describe it, is when I look back at like the human struggle over thousands of years and really what made us survive, it tends to be the case that I feel best when I'm doing the things that are kind of in line with how my ancestors lived, right? So, I mean, on one hand, you could say, eating certain things and drinking and sleeping. But then as we kind of described it there, which is like banding together mm -hmm. and collaborating, ultimately that's central to how, why we're here. And so it's conceivable that our ancestors might have left that message in my genetic code to say, Stephen, not only are you going to struggle forward, but you're going to do it together. Yeah. And so when you helped your friend with their dry cleaning, that was a really human, historically like human act of banding together and support. Um, but I, I feel like we've kind of lost track of those fundamental human things, if that makes sense. And whenever we do them now, which is like helping each other, you know, eating stuff that's grown from the ground, the overstimulation of digi like digital items and screens in our lives, loneliness, these mm -hmm. are all callings to kind of get back to our tribe. And in fact, I, I've, I'm coming to learn, despite what the happiness industry sells you, it actually might be really, really fundamentally simple in a, in a way, which is trying to be more human. Yeah, yeah, I've heard. Yeah, that's such a good point. I've heard somebody s express this as like, you should ask, are you doing a few things every day that your ancestors would have done? Yeah. What two hundred fifty thousand years ago? Exercise, right? Being being together in our tribes, right? Being yeah. outdoors, Out, outdoors. Right. The, the studies uh, of being outdoors are right. really startling. And I think the problem is so many of us now. I mean, uh, uh, writers are the sort of ultimate example, but 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 so many of us, you for sure, like we're doing what we're mainly doing with our days is manipulating symbols in one way or another, right? Images, words, ideas, all day long. <laughs> like, and, and a lot of these things are so new. Like writing is, is an incredibly modern invention on the evolutionary uh, timescale, let, let alone podcasting. And um, this is a sort of very low-grade productivity idea that I've written about and I think is really important is to, to try to think about anything you're doing in terms of physical actions and physical next actions. And so one thing I do when I'm writing, for example, is I sort of set goals that are to do with creating physical documents, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to write this. I'm going to print it out. And it's going to have something on my desk to hold in my hands that I did today. It's very easy to get lost in that, in that world that doesn't have like hard edges, that doesn't have a physicality in it. And it's very alluring because it feels kind of you feel sort of godlike in that world if you spend all day sort of with your head mainly occupying cyberspace or the metaverse. But but yeah, you miss out on that essentially human stuff that you're talking about. And in your new book, you talk a lot about kind of stripping back a lot of this bullshit that has consumed our lives and the complexity and these narratives which have been kind of sold by the happiness and efficiency and procrastination industry, let's call it. Um, your new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It, which I found incredibly important. I think that's the best way to describe it. So I really want to go through a couple of the points in the book that I I found compelling and that I wanted to ask you questions on. The first is chapter one, which was the limit, uh, um, the limit embracing life. 
Um, and you talk about this concept of embracing our limits. What did you mean by that? Seems to me, and it's certainly my experience, but I think it is more universal than just like my, my issues. Seems to me that uh, a lot of what we do, uh, the way we behave in the world and the way we try to manage our time, especially, it's all really based around trying to avoid confronting something about our situation. It's a kind of an emotional avoidance. It's, it's to avoid feeling what it is like to be who we are, which is finite human beings, right? 4,000 weeks, the title refers to the approximate length of uh, average lifespan in the West. Um, which is terrifying, by the way. It is terrifying, it yeah. Sound yeah. Like yeah. A <laughs> I thought I had more than that. It's a risky decision, I realise in hindsight, to give the book this title because it might just cause people to like run away from the bookshop and not buy the book. But anyway, the... Um, so we're very finite in our amount of time. We're obviously finite on the daily level of the amount of time we have, but also finite in how much control we can exert over it, right? You, nobody knows what's happening in the very next moment. You can, you can take actions to increase the likelihood that what you want is going to happen, but we're all totally sort of vulnerable to events and to every, to every moment. It's increasingly impossible to have sort of complete knowledge about anything that you're doing or any sphere in which you're acting. And then, you know, relationships just inherently involve, you know, romantic relationships, but all relationships, it just inherently involve this kind of vulnerability to other people and and uh, things they might do to hurt you or thing, bad things that might happen to them that would cause you to suffer. And so we're in this kind of very, very limited situation. And the I guess the main argument of my book is that like, if we followed through the ramifications of that, we would use our time in a, in a, in a somewhat different way. And actually, I think a more relaxing way. I don't think it's a kind of recipe for stress, although the title is probably a recipe mm. for stress. But um, in productivity, for example, the quest to try to do everything, to become like limitlessly optimized so that you can handle all your incoming email, you can pursue all your ambitions and business ventures, you can meet all the obligations you feel from your family and friends or from society and do it all. Like That's trying to become unlimited, right? That's trying to become limitless. Um and we, t and there are lots of other examples of this I, uh, where I think what we're really doing is is just trying to avoid feeling our, our finitude. And some people want to say, well, isn't it great to believe that we're limitless? Because then you can like do astonishing things. And I want to say, no, I think the kind of limitation I'm talking about, confronting it and feeling it and living into it is actually the precondition of doing the the most sort of extraordinary things with a life because you get to kind of give up on this impossible quest to fit yourself to every expectation that, that the world might have. One in which you can only fail. Right. And, and just focus on doing that. Right. Yeah. Inadequate. Yeah. yeah. And, and the sort of great inventors and the great entrepreneurs of today and the great sort of historical figures, like all these people, they didn't, they did things that people thought were previ previously thought were impossible. Yeah. But they didn't, um, they, they very, very deliberately understood that using their time the way they wanted to use it meant sacrifices. Um, it meant neglecting things that would be completely good things to do, right? I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here, right? I mean, yeah. it's like you, there are 25 things you could do. It's not that only one of them is any good, like 24 of them are good, but even so, most of them are going to have to, you're going to have to be able to withstand the anxiety of just neglecting most of them in order to focus on. And fundamentally, you believe, which I also completely agree with, which is in fact why I have this sand timer <laughs> here, which I just picked off my desk before we started recording. You believe that um, people do go through life 
not almost, I don't, for me, it's like not realizing slash not believing that they will die. It's almost like humans aren't able to understand the concept of infinity and they're also not able to understand the concept of finality. Right. This, the fact that we will, I will come to an end. So we don't live in such a way. We don't live with such a belief. And if you look at a lot of the decisions I make, mm-hmm. you would assert that I'm living like I think I'm going to live forever. Right. Because yeah. of my, my misprioritization of things that actually clearly matter more. And this kind of constant deference of um, happiness to the future. I will be happy when, and then we live in, you know, because one of the things I say, and I say this in my live show is, I say to the audience that if you think about it, probably about 90% of this audience are currently living in a way in which a previous self of them told themselves, if they got here, they would be happy. Right, yes. But their current self is saying, not now, we'll be happy when. So right. they're deferring it again yep. into the future. Yep. So people don't live like they know they're going to die, essentially. Right. And I think, you know, something that's important to say about that is like, I think that 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 mindset, I've, I've seen it called, and I refer to it in the book as like, when I finally mindset, right? It's like, when something happens, then the moment of truth is going to come. And after that, life is going to be fulfilling and easy, but not yet. I mean, it's obviously, as you say, it's totally like drains the meaning out of life in the present. But it serves, again, it serves this purpose of avoidance, right? Because if you're always storing up fulfillment for the future, you don't have to acknowledge the fact that, like, this is it. Life isn't a dress rehearsal. Like, you've got to do things now if you're ever going to do them. There's a great quote from John Maynard Keynes, the economist that I use in there, about how people who live in this mindset, and he's talking about pretty much everyone, really, um, they're trying to secure for their actions. I won't get this exactly right. They're trying to secure for their actions a spurious and delusive immortality by always pushing them into the future, right? So the man who thinks like this, Keynes writes, uh, doesn't doesn't love his cat, but only his cat's kittens. And not really the kittens, but the kitten's kittens and so on forever, right? And so the downside is that you never get to enjoy and value and find fulfillment in life now. But the upside is it sort of helps you feel like you might be going to live forever. It's kind of useful to be putting things off because it 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 helps this act of denial that we're all engaged in. It also means that we continue as humans to struggle forward, right? We continue to take on struggle, whether it's challenge or ambition. We continue to be ambitious. And then I go, well, maybe that's also what allowed our ancestors to give give birth to us. Because if our ancestors weren't trying to build a better tomorrow and kind of deferring gratitude to the to the empire that right. they were trying to build, then maybe we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So is it a human thing to also kind of defer our happiness to the future? I think it must be and really is. And I think we are sort of goal-seeking organisms. I think it's hugely compounded by the culture in which we live and the economic system in which we live. And I think it's sort of gone uh, into warp speed in a way that we could step back from. But I also think that it's not about giving up goals, right? It's not about stopping trying to achieve things in the future. It's about it's about not investing the whole value of what you're doing in those in those future outcomes. You can't build anything, a relationship, business, creative work. You can't do it unless you are partly focused on on where you're on where you're going. But you don't have to be exclusively focused on where you're going. And I would say you probably shouldn't be exclusively focused on where you're going because it will damage the product that you're Mm. creating as well. You might fall into the efficiency trap, as you call it, which is chapter two. Right. You get, you get completely fixated on valuing the the present only in terms of how it um, is going to help create the, the, the future thing. And then you find what happens is that 
actually you get further and further away from achieving that thing because you, in trying to make yourself more efficient and trying to sort of process more and more tasks to get closer to your goal, you make yourself more efficient and then more and more tasks like flood in to fill the excess capacity. Um, this is Parkinson's law and a whole lot of other kind of, it goes by a whole lot of names, but it's this idea that, um, yeah, if, you, if, you, if all you do is make yourself more efficient, then you'll just be dealing with a greater incoming volume of things. And but, yeah. Inbox Zero, I felt, was the perfect example of that in your book where the better you get at sending emails and replying fast, in fact, the more replies you get. And people come to know you as having a reputation of he emails back quickly, which is going to get even more emails. And then the challenge of getting to Inbox Zero becomes increasingly harder and then you find yourself drowning. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's just, when you spell it out like that, it's like, of course. And, and you know, I remember when I was... Um, a young journalist sort of feeling overwhelmed by the number of articles I was being asked to write. So you get really, really better at writing them really fast and you get a reputation for being able to write quite a long, complicated article in a short amount of time. Like, who's the editor going to ask when the next one comes up, right? I mean, and, you know, I got a lot of benefit from being the person that the editor asked, but it certainly didn't make me less busy. Yeah. I, I think I have that a bit with my PA at the moment. She, I've got a reputation with her of being able to do 50 meetings a day right <laughs> so my calendar is now 50 meetings a day and we've actually forgotten about the concept of like i need to eat at some point right <laughs> so like there's no i looked at my calendar yeah. the other day and I'm, she's superb and in fact she she does exactly what i've always asked her to do so she's not at fault here i am but i looked at my calendar the other day and i was with her in the car and i go isn't it funny it's like every minute of the next 14 hours is scheduled but i but there's no space for lunch or just like mm -hmm. uh, sending a voice note to my girlfriend right so I've kind of like misprioritized my life. But again, it's because I've, 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 I've not fought back against that. By being successful at being efficient, mm -hmm. I've be, be, you know, brought more efficiency into my life and taken away things that give me meaning, like connecting with my girlfriend or my mother or my family or, you know, those, or passions. And, and I yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to know if this resonates with you. For me, when I've got into that kind of groove, that place where you're sort of pursuing efficiency uh, at the expense of everything else, for me anyway, part of what's going on is was always to do with self-worth, right? It's this idea that you've got to get to this point where you are this optimal and this efficient and productive that you wouldn't really be justifying your existence on the planet somehow if you if you if you didn't do all these things. And so I think lots and lots of people who sort of accomplish stuff are driven to accomplish stuff because they feel like they need to accomplish stuff. Like it's not okay if they if they don't uh, accomplish stuff. And so that is a kind of never-ending treadmill as well, because um, like, why are you going to decide that any particular given level of output or accomplishment is the one where you can where you can relax? And I think one of the things I'm always at pains to try to get across talking about this book is that um, this is meant to be a relaxing message, right? I think this is a liberating message that can be like a weight off your shoulders because if you if you see that what you were doing was trying to do an impossible amount in order to feel like okay about yourself on some deep buried level. Well, if you really begin to internalize that it's impossible, then it can't be what you need to do to, in order to feel okay about yourself. Maybe you're okay already. And then the things that you do in the world are kind of extra. And then I think, you know, the, the message of our being finite, the message of our, of our being limited is not, so now you've got to like squeeze value out of every moment and go base jumping every weekend or something. Otherwise, have you really lived? It's much more like, okay, oh, great. The pressure's off. I can't do an impossible amount. 
I can only do a few of the things that seem like they matter. So all I need to do is choose for now which ones seem the most important and focus on them and give my energy to them. And it's much more doable. I can completely relate to that attachment of efficiency to self-worth. It felt so, it felt like you were calling me out when you said it. <laughs> and the other thing I have, which I've, I just realised as you were saying was because I've become successful in the eyes of society, quote unquote, I'm now also trying to live up to my own external reputation that people have of me. People say, oh, Steve, you're, you never sleep. You're so, um, right. <laughs> you, you, you work so hard. Yeah. So when I have days where I don't work really hard and I clearly just achieved nothing that day, <laughs> I, I'm like haunted by the, my, almost my reputation, right. which is largely false. My reputation that I don't sleep and that I'm working all the time and that I'm super productive and that I'm organized and I don't procrastinate. I'll tell you now, it is a load of bullshit. <laughs> I, some days I do like a lot of the, a lot of days I do way less than the people around me. Right. But I have this, so, but I do have those moments now where if I have like an unproductive day or I've like slept until midday for whatever reason, which happens a lot, by the way, or I've procrastinated, which happens every day, or I'm really unproductive. I go, but you're not being Steve Bartlett. You're, you're a fairly, you're letting down your reputation. Right. You're a fraud. You are a fraud. I get that a lot. That feeling of like, it doesn't like cripple me, but that feeling of, oh, I, if I look at today and I look up the reputation of Stephen Bartlett, I am a fraud. Um, it's fascinating. And I think it must be, it's a lot, it's a lot worse with a high public profile, but I do think it's kind of almost a, a universal trait that a yeah, lot of people have. A lot of people who are sort of, well, thinking back, we've talked before about like, being, I was a, just a sort of your garden variety high achiever at school, right? Like the kid getting their A grades or whatever. And, 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 and a lot of people in that situation have what is called in psychology, you probably know, like a, they have a fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset, right? So one of the consequences of this is every time you do well, it's not something to be happy about because you did well. It's like something to feel pressure about because now that's the bar that you've got <laughs> exactly. to reach next time. And it's like, you know, it's, suddenly your your success has become this um, this standard that you've now got to meet every single time in the future. And that is like, it's 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 a agonizing way to to live usually that's people thinking that their inner critic demands it or their parents demand it obviously the bigger your audience the more you you can fall into thinking that like there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who who demand it but of course that also gives you the power to do something very helpful and liberating for those people when you break the fourth wall or whatever and yeah. point out that it Be isn't honest. like that <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah yeah the other one i always get is the morning routine people will send me the, on instagram like what steve can you tell us your morning routine yeah and i can almost imagine them at home like sending the dm and being sat there with their notepad ready yeah. for my response and i'm like honestly i sometimes i get out of bed at 11 <laughs> sometimes i don't sleep so i end up getting out right. of bed at one sometimes you know i'll get out at six there's no green juice for me there's no yoga there's no Con continual meditation or run or whatever. Right. It's a sloppy mess, the whole mm -hmm. process. The whole process of me waking up is a really sloppy mess. I'm trying to improve. <laughs> I bring people here that talk about morning routines. It still doesn't seem to work. But um, but despite of that, yeah. I'm happy. My businesses have gone well. Yeah. My, I've managed to achieve my ambitions. Despite of my total imperfection in most key areas that the happiness industry would assert because they need to sell you complex things or else why would you buy? If, it, if, if the truth is that you're going to be imperfect and that's okay. Maybe I'm okay, you said there. If that's the truth, it's hard to sell you it. But that's the truth as I know it. And that's why I enjoy these conversations. One thing I did talk about there was procrastination. Mm -hmm. 
And this is a topic where, which I think honestly plagues people into feeling like they are inadequate. Yeah. If I make a video on my Instagram about procrastination, it will outperform everything. Relationships perform the best. Okay, number two right. is anything with the title procrastination. Right. Maybe I'll title this video about procrastination and it'll do really well. Yeah. Why do people procrastinate? Well, they, they watch those videos presumably while they should be getting on with their, getting on with <laughs> the working so. question. Right? So. That's, that, that, that's probably like why subscribe. procrastination videos are really popular. One level, there's lots of different reasons, fear of failure, fear of success, fear of all sorts of different things. But, but at a deep level, I make the argument anyway, you don't want to feel what it feels like to be limited and imperfect. And so if you hold on to a project, if you keep it in your mind in the world of fantasy, it can stay perfect. It can be later that you're going to do this great thing. Any action that actually brings things into the world involves a confrontation with your limitations. Maybe you're not going to have the talent for it. Maybe it's not going to be well received. Maybe it's going to be too complicated. If I'm trying to write a chapter of a book, like the stakes are high for me because I want it to go well, but I don't know that it is going to go well. I want it to be well received, but I don't know that it will be well received. So much nicer to just spend that time doing something kind of pointless and, you know, scrolling around or whatever, because, yeah, because I don't have to have confront my limitations. And what I want to try to convey in that topic in, in, in this book anyway, I think is to say, look, bringing anything into the world, studying for any um, qualification, doing any kind of creative work, like launching any kind of business, like it, the, the imperfection is guaranteed. Like you definitely aren't going to get to bring it into the world in, in exactly in tune with your fantasy. And everyone is in the same boat. And this is completely unavoidable and baked in. So you might as well do it, right? Because it's like if people, I think people, they get caught up in themselves. They think, well, I'm going to make a fool of myself or I'm going to let myself down or I'm going to let my friends or my parents down. But it's like, no, the imperfection the fact that it will stumble and not be everything you dreamed it could have been, that ship has sailed. Like that's just for everyone. So now can we just move forward and do our imperfect things as, and lots of them will turn out to be, uh, you know, fantastic things, but they will all be imperfect because because that's what it is to, to bring things into the world as a human being. Knowing that and having written a, tr- a chapter in your book called Becoming a Better Procrastinator, do you still procrastinate? Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm always, I always feel like the, my, my point about that, I get asked this question and I'm always like, look, you've got to compare me with who I was before, <laughs> not with this perfect person, because I am not that perfect person, but I am a lot better at it than I, than I was. Um, yeah. And what, where I stumble on that is not so much anymore with the idea that it's got to be like, perfect standard because if you spend a few years as a journalist you get that sort of beaten out of you right because like deadlines come deadlines come you just got to send the thing in and you stop thinking after a while that your that your glorious prose has got to be perfect you can't let it out of your sight until it's perfect because it's just never how it works where I still run into trouble is that I do feel this urge to feel in control of all the things that are going on in my life and all the things going on in my work. So it's very tempting for me to say, um, you know, I've got to write that really important thing, or I've got to think through this really important thing, but first I'm going to make sure that all my 
inboxes are under control and then I'm going better do all that admin about finances that I'd left that I'd left and I better sort of and then you before you know it it's like better like rearrange my desk so that all the all the pens are straightened up whatever displacement activities things that make me feel more in control of my world but actually don't move the things that I care about forward the most and I'm getting better on that too but that's the thing that's where the the struggle is for me I will definitely spend like long periods of time getting my ducks in a row and mm. clearing the decks. And I write in the book about how you've really got to try and fight the surge to clear the decks because they will never be clear, right? So you've got to, mm. you've got to just get on with things. But, uh, but yeah, work in progress for, for sure. That's a very honest answer and I'm glad to hear that. You and me both. <laughs> you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. In that chapter about procrastination, you, you talk a lot about focus as well in this <clears throat> idea of uh, avoiding mid your middling priorities. Mm which I thought was really good advice. So could you talk a little bit about the, the importance of avoiding middling priorities? Certainly. The, 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 the story that dramatises this is this idea that some people may have heard about. It's attributed to Warren Buffett, but I think probably it didn't come from Warren Buffett. People often just take wise sayings and yeah. say that Warren Buffett I said I wish them. they'd do that with me. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> it's Warren Buffett. Buddha and Confucius, basically. Yeah. So hopefully you Einstein as well. You as well. Right. Yes, right, right, right. <laughs> but he is supposed, Buffett is supposed to have been asked, like, how do you decide what to prioritize in life? And to have replied that you should make a list of your top 25 goals in life and order them numerically from one to 25. And then take the top five on that list and really focus on them in your life and take the next 20 and avoid them like the plague because they are the ones that you care about enough to let them distract you from the from the top five, but not the ones that you're that are easy to let go of because you don't really care about them, right? They belong in this middle zone. Whether or not that exercise is a useful exercise, the the, the principle here, it, I think, is that you have to sort of be especially wary of of claims on your attention and your time that do matter a bit, but just not as much as the things that you care about the most. It's very easy to, um, people talk all the time about the importance of learning to say no, right? But people often, I think in the, there's a subtext there, they think what that means is if you just learn to say no to all the stuff you don't want to do, you can spend your time doing stuff you do want to do. But I quote actually Elizabeth Gilbert, the, the writer in the book saying like, no, it's way harder than that. You have to say no to things that you do want to do because there are more things that matter than you have time for. So middling priorities are, you know, that friendship that, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's nice when you meet up with that person, but it's not, neither of you are getting that much out of it. And it's taking another hour away from, I don't know, 
your partner, your child, your best friend, you know, definitely sort of work projects that sort of, yeah, you can do them. You could handle that. It might make you a little bit of money or, you know, whatever, but it's just not, it's not the number one thing. It takes quite a lot to resist those because they are, they're not unimportant. They're just not important enough. And it feels like um, more is more, but as the phrase goes in this context, less is more. You, I, I've observed that in my life anyway. If you if you want to be successful in business, then focusing on one as opposed to having three startups is much more much better. But p- some people will brag about how many businesses they run or how many things they do, as if they believe that that makes them more more valuable. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll brag about how many friends they have as opposed to the quality of them. And it tends to be the case that that phrase "less is more" is is true in the sense of focusing on less things gives you much more meaning and depth in life, and that's ultimately what's what matters. Yeah, and actually, I think it's probably the way to accomplish more things as well, right? It's, 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 um, so one thing that I've found, I, I can't talk on the level of businesses launched, but only on the level of, uh, you know, articles and books written, is the degree to which I can do things sequentially and train myself to do one big thing at a time and wait till it's finished before you move on to the next one. Takes a lot, takes kind of guts to do it because it mm. feels better to have a finger in every pie at once. But to the extent that I can do that, to that extent, I get more of those things done yeah. um, because you make most of them wait. You focus on one, you do it, and then it's finished. And then you bring the next one in and you do that. Um, it's so tempting to sort of dissipate your energies because I think it makes you feel, we're back to the same idea, right? It makes you feel limitless. It makes you feel like you can wrap your arms around the whole world. It stops people, in the case of my work, it stops people pestering you because like, where's that thing you said you'd do? And it's very nice to live in that world of um, of, of sort of multitasking and multi-projects, but it's not the most effective way to get mm. the things done. Yeah, mm. I, I'm i struggling with that, I think, for sure. And I think... I think as well when you've got um when you've got more opportunities like I get a lot of a lot of people sending me a lot of things to do these days a lot of things that I could do mm. it becomes an even greater and more important skill to master so the amount of like we had one day last week where they're like every journalist across these multiple newspapers wants to speak to you about this I made this donation mm-hmm. and there's part of me that goes oh yeah that's you know I'll do all of these TV things that day, but then of course it comes at the cost of something else. And we, and we never really focus on the cost, right? It seems like, and that's kind of the curse I have in my mind sometimes is I'm too focused on the benefit of doing the thing as if, you know, which is basically the premise of your book that like, as if my time was unlimited. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's like, I was, I remember reading about this thing, which has weirdly stayed in my mind for many years, this idea that they believe humans can only juggle a certain amount of balls because of the physics of a ball going up and then the speed in which one could possibly move. So they think it's 14 and nobody's been able to break the the world record ever. Is that the record? The 14 balls. No one's ever been able to juggle more than 14 balls. And and (laughs) that record is held because of the physics of the balls going up and the way that they would collide if you made it 15. And that made me think there is a a physical limitation to the amount of balls we can physically juggle as humans. And the balls you pick up come at the expense of the ones you don't. Yeah. And that's, I've tried to keep, remember that, that I have to pick my 14 balls in life. Oh, hopefully not fucking 14. I can probably, probably do two. But I have to pick my balls in life and realize that every one I pick is at the expense of another. And even looking at, you know, I write in my book that I really love waffles, but I also like 
want to have a six pack. <laughs> I can only pick one. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. Really, I yeah. can only, you know, yeah. it's a metaphor, but like I, can, I yeah. have to choose which one's important. And it's the same with cheating. Some people might like having sex, mm-hmm. but they also might like having a relationship. And you have to realize that if you want to be in a faithful relationship, it comes at the cost of something. And um, mm-hmm. Right, no. And I think that, you know, we yes, we spend so much effort trying to avoid thinking about costs or trying to avoid incurring them. But again, there's something freeing about seeing that you are always incurring costs, that every decision to spend an hour doing anything is a decision to not Mm. spend it doing other things, that, you know, every path you choose, you're you're declining to choose all these other paths. It's painful because it means that, like, loss is built in Mm. to, to living a human life. But it's also, like, it's so unavoidable. Mm. Like there's nothing that can be done about that. That's just built into being finite. So but, in a way, like we can relax about that. Imagine if bit. there wasn't cost though, things wouldn't be special. Like if right. life no, yeah, was yeah. forever, if yeah. I if I could have the best of both worlds, then the one I choose wouldn't have it. You know, scarcity adds value, they say. So no, totally. Yeah. And I mean, there's been there's there's like philosophical work going back on like, would you actually want to be immortal uh, if you no. could? No, and I agree. Yeah, I don't think you would because I think as I uh, write in the book, like if you were immortal. The answer to the question, should I do X with my day to day, would always just be who cares? Mm. Like, because if you didn't do it today, you could do it on any number of other days uh, mm. to the uh, stretching off into infinity. So I think absolutely. Uh, it's not pleasant to confront our finitude, but life would have no meaning if it went, if it didn't stop. You write about watermelons in your book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Chapter five is about the watermelon problem. The famous BuzzFeed watermelon. This was like, what, five years ago now. Two journalists from BuzzFeed put uh, rubber bands around a watermelon and they just kept adding rubber bands. Uh, I think it was like 600 and something rubber bands before the watermelon just exploded. That was the end of the Facebook Live. But the point that I'm using it to make is that, uh, you know, millions of people watch that. And I'm not like, it, I don't think there's anything terrible with spending an hour of your life watching people put rubber bands around a watermelon, but but they didn't choose to watch it. That's a It's a very clear example of the way in which, especially in the sort of attention economy that we live in now, your attention is incredibly important because what you pay attention to just is your life, right? What, what uh, Over the course of a life, whatever you paid attention to is just, it's just what your life was. And yet it's very easily uh, hijackable um, and... Uh, and you know no, nobody who ended up watching that that hour got up that morning thinking um what i'd really like to do today is uh spend an hour put it, watching people put rubber bands around a watermelon so it's just really the the question of distraction the question of how we steward our attention and again if you want to break in the middle of the day and someone's doing some stunt involving a watermelon fine mm-hmm. <laughs> right the, but but just bringing consciousness to that fact that when we pay attention to things, we are paying very literally with little chunks of our, of our life. Have you found any practical ways to make yourself less distracted by such compelling videos? <laughs> <laughs> There's really two parts to this, I think. One is, especially in the modern era, right? One is the source of the distraction. So definitely, like, I don't have social media on my phone. I do that on a I do that on a laptop exclusively. Um, I've I've sort of have a sort of ever shifting and never never perfectly observed set of personal rules about like 
when I will turn to my email and when I will turn to the internet and when I will be try to be sort of offline and focused on on writing and thinking. But the other side of it, I think, is is the distractibility, not just the sort of not the things that are reaching out to grab our attention, but the fact that we kind of go along willingly with this stuff. And again, you know, it's just my one thesis, but I think the reason that we're doing that is because it's much more comfortable than focusing on hard stuff. Focusing on hard stuff is 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 unpleasant sometimes because it brings us into contact with our limitations and then distraction is much nicer thing to do uh with that time because it doesn't so really a big part of this for me and it's been definitely a slow gradual thing it's not a sort of uh one clever trick or something is just to expect a certain amount of discomfort in things that matter right just to sort of just to expect that writing i keep using this example because it's personal to me but like that it's like it feels difficult uh cal newport uh, who wrote the book deep work and digital minimalism who's very good on this has this argument that like what people call writer's block that's just the feeling of writing right because it's a hard thing to do and sometimes you might get into flow great but most of the time it's probably going to be a question of like it's like a little bit hard and the analogy that people always use is with weightlifting right i mean you don't expect if it's you don't expect that to feel non non uncomfortable not that i have great experience of it but like <laughs> you don't there are certain areas where things where sort of growth involves discomfort and we're okay with that and then there are other areas often involving cognitive activities and where, where we we're somehow deeply offended that it feels a bit difficult to do it but no it does the other thing that i always think is extraordinarily difficult is really listening to another person right it never really gets super easy that i think especially in relationships right to sort of to really concentrate on what someone is saying and not just to be thinking oh but then when when they're finished this is what i'm going to say it's it takes effort and if you're if 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 your response to that feeling of effort is like i can't feel effort it must be easy then it's going to be much more tempting to just be like checking your phone when you should be listening or something so just a bit of a willingness to experience mild discomfort i think it's kind of a superpower yeah and obviously there's a lot of social narratives that kind of point at it as being a failure like you're right even the phrase writer's block the word block doesn't feel like <laughs> very natural it feels like there's something that must be You've got a disorder clicked. right yeah 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 yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah 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 and a lot it's so funny because you said at the start of this some of these new inventions are really holding us back like words and vo vocabulary <laughs> yeah. like there's so many of them even i talk a lot about in my book the, the idea of finding your passion mm -hmm. there's so many like things um hidden within that phrase first you have to go in search of it mm -hmm. because of the word find mm -hmm. so people go they go off, off in search of this thing that they think they can find it alludes to the fact that it's singular because mm -hmm. the word passion is singular. So I'm looking for a Easter egg somewhere, which right. I need to go and search and find. And if I don't find it, then I'm a failure. And much of the, the messages I get in my DMs, as I've said before, are kids that ha are feeling inadequate and like they're a failure because they haven't found their passion. When yeah. if you just say, well, maybe, maybe it's not something that you have to go and search of necessarily. Maybe there's more than one. Yep. It can be a really liberating thing. And the, I think words generally are really constrained and they cause people a ton of, like, are you in love? My right. mom comes home, I'm, you know, I'm dating someone. She goes, is it love? Immediately after my brain scrambles around right. trying to figure out if what I feel is the same as the definition that she feels right. because I said I loved peanut butter, but this is different. So yeah. it's like, and, the, for, and, it, and also it begets a binary response. Yes or no. Yeah. 
makes you so oh, self-conscious that you can't actually give yourself to the yeah. experience. That's reminding me of um, when I became a father, like literally 95% of people who I interacted with who were parents themselves already would, would say, um, oh, you should, you should really savour these early months with a newborn baby. It's so special. You should really savour it. And this is true. Right? It is incredibly special. You should savour it. But all it did to me was have me thinking like, oh my goodness, am I, am I, am I savoring this in the right way? Am I? And then of course, you're certainly not savoring it in that time because you're just like lost in your head. And it's like th this, yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's another, it's another example of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess the, the antidote is to liberate yourself from the expectation of like words and phrases and expect social expectations that you should feel and act a certain way and, so and be able to answer certain questions. Yeah, or just to understand that, like you know, yeah, things are complicated, and you only they all, they sort of congeal over time, and you sometimes you only understand things in the rearview mirror, and uh, you just sort of have to navigate intuitively. You probably do know when you're in a relationship, and you don't know if it's love. You probably do know if it feels like it's got forward motion or if it feels terribly stagnant or if it feel you know you can you can sort of intuit these things even if you can't slot these them into these kind of rigid categories yeah, yeah. I, I might get this quite wrong but when when you're talking about c cognitive behavioral therapy and in fact we can achieve a form of which may be better than cognitive behavioral therapy of that therapy with like self-analysis in various ways and for me this podcast and the diary that I had to keep originally when I, when it first started to do mm. it, and also this obligation I have to make content for mm. the world has been one of the greatest forms of like therapy I've ever encountered. Um, and I, I always, I think it's like one of the unappreciated ways to arrive at self-awareness, overcome your own bullshit. And yeah, which is, which is having to write, having yeah. to think and having to try and find the truth in your own experience. Yeah. Can you relate to that? No, totally. And I, for me, I mean, there's lots of research about how writing down your personal problems, for example, is incredibly, like journaling, it, it works and it's proven to work. Um, it's not necessarily because you come up with solutions, although that can happen. It's because you end up, you sort of have to take this third person stance on your own mental contents. And you have to do that for sure if you're trying to package it in some form that other people can um can benefit from or can understand. So writing for an audience is is absolutely an example of that. Um, there's something incredibly powerful in seeing your issues, your interests, whatever, from the perspective of another person. I think it's related to that thing about how so often in life, you know, our friends can see what what we need to do or what what's needed in our lives a bit more clearly than than we can, because you sort of um you can't see the wood from the for, for the trees inside your own head, but but they can be like, no, very obviously, you need to do this and then this. Yeah. So, so it's a little bit of that uh, of that effect as well. And how you can always give better advice than you live by. No, absolutely. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> um, the consequences of having this highly efficient, uh, productivity-focused life. You see it in people. You were talking earlier about the, the great innovators of the world that managed to focus on a set of priorities. But when you ask these people if they're happy, like Elon Musk, if he's happy, no, I nobody thinks Elon Musk is happy. <laughs> no, and I think he said in the Rogan interview that you wouldn't like to be me. You wouldn't like to right. be my head. Um, but we still seem to pursue that over 
what we think will make us happy any well what we're what what will clearly make us happy anyway i think that uh all of us have something inside us that we're sort of here if this doesn't sound too supernatural that we're sort of here to express and to to put out into the world i think the it, it gets complicated because some people i don't want to accuse elon musk of this but I think it's probably very often true of certain kind of very driven people. It, it, it's not just that they're sort of trying to bring their gift into the world. It, it's an odd and not necessarily helpful way of trying to sort out certain like psychological issues they have. So they feel that they have to achieve a certain amount because they were not, um, you know, given sufficient unconditional love by their parents. So they need it from the world or, or they feel that, um, yeah, they need to justify their existence in, in some way. Um, and then it gets hard to know when to stop. It gets hard to tell the difference between success and things that are truly bringing you happiness. But at the same time, right, you don't want to... It's important to to not suggest, I think, that the, that the ideal is to be, for everyone, is to be so completely chilled out that all you would want to do is lie in a hammock on a, on a beach and sort of not create things in, in one way or another. That might be appropriate for for some people. But there is this fear when I talk about this stuff and write about this stuff of like, oh, wouldn't it lead you to just think, well, why do anything? You know, wouldn't, wouldn't it all just lead us to be sort of nihilists in that way? Um, uh, and I don't think so for that reason. But I also think uh, like, let's cross that bridge when we come to it. We're, we're already, we're all so driven and so sort of um, trying to get more and more and more done that there's not a huge risk yet of us becoming so zen about all these things that we mm. kind of stop achieving entirely I, I i pondered that a lot in my life um this idea that because you one of the things you said earlier was maybe i'm okay this kind of realization mm -hmm. that maybe i am already enough yeah maybe none of these goals are going to increase my value maybe even if i become a multi-millionaire steve bartlett is just going to be worth one steve bartlett still um <laughs> i had the, i had i pondered that for when I became a millionaire, right? When I, when I, when my company listed on the stock market and I thought, well, this doesn't feel any different. In fact, the anticlimax makes me feel pretty bad. Right. The expectation that I was going to feel like, you know, like I was more worthy that the, the anticlimax of that has made, had made me feel worse. And then asking myself the question, well, if I am already enough, then what's the point in striving for more? And I, I my conclusive, my conclusion on all of this ponderance was that, Realizing that I'm enough is actually the foundation for like real ambition. And and the yeah. minute, when I was when I was insecure enough to believe that money or a Lamborghini might make me more, I was striving for things that weren't my real ambitions. They were social ambitions. Mm -hmm. And the minute you realize you're enough and that Lamborghini isn't going to do it, then you start re re planning your ambitions and go. Do you know what I actually love doing is piano, and right? Hanging out with my niece, right? So that that feeling that that I am enough um, is the foundation for real ambition. Totally. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, that's a, such a good way of putting it. I mean, I, the way I've sometimes thought about this is like it's sort of ambition and achievement and creation. They don't have to be the thing you're doing, the thing that you need to do in order to get somewhere. They can be the thing you do just to express yes. the fact that it's great to be here and you that great yeah. to have these skills and these opportunities. Um, I'm not religious, but there is a, uh, this idea in, Christianity that I keep running up against now because people contact me and say, have you thought about this? Because it's clearly related. This notion of, this notion of, uh, grace that, that like you don't, you can't justify yourself by your, 
works in the world, right? You can't sort of achieve salvation by what you do. But you also don't, in this model anyway, you don't need to achieve it either because you're already justified in the eyes of God if you're a religious person. And so the reason that you do things like this, from the reason that you then do stuff in the world is, is again, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's for the it's an act of like glorification or worship, right? Or for, as we were saying, like just expressing the fact that it's great to be able to do these things and like, hey, you could never have been born, you know? So it's not a reason to not do things. It's that, it's that you're not doing them to try to justify yourself mm. in the eyes of the world or if you're religious, you know, it would be in the eyes of God, whatever. But it doesn't mean you don't do things. It just means you do them from a different motivation, which mm. is like, hey, I get to do these things. That's great. You know, I, I feel like these existential thinkers are, are somewhat tortured. Sometimes. Oh yes, yeah. Do you do you relate to that? Uh, sure. I mean, I think you know, um, uh, there's a philosopher uh, who died recently, Brian McGee, who um, talks about d the distinction between people who sort of have philosophical problems and don't. And what he means is that, like, from the age of like five, he can remember lying on a in a field, looking up at the sky, and thinking, like, well, it can't. It can't be that the universe stops somewhere, but it also can't be that it goes on forever. Like, what? And and yeah, and saying that there are people who are sort of troubled by these things in some real personal way, and then there are people who are not troubled by those things. And they have, I mean, they may be very intelligent and deep people, but they don't have these kind of like, hold on, like, what, what, what's it all about? Like, was it, and anyway, I'm, I'm one of the people who does, and it sounds like you are too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there would be something nice to not, to not be, perhaps. In your book, you say that we're addicted to the speed of life. Is that true? And why is it an addiction? I'm, I'm talking there about the sort of acceleration of the culture, the fact that everything, you know, move so fast that we're able to do so many things so much more quickly travel communicate uh cook food you know than we than we once could and how and why that like it's a if you stop and think about it it's really weird that all that technology and all that acceleration has not left us feeling um more relaxed and <laughs> chilled out right because it saves time um the world that has 747s in it and microwaves in it and the internet in it or by rights to feel much calmer because it's all this time is saved but of course it doesn't have that effect like it has have has that effect on nobody um it makes everybody feel more impatient and rushed um and i think that the reason that the the frame of addiction makes sense i'm drawing on the work of a therapist called stephanie brown who's who was herself an alcoholic got sober with AA, then started being a therapist to in Silicon Valley to various people in the sort of first dot-com boom around to like 2000s. And, and seeing in them this trait in their addiction to urge, what she called their addiction to urgency, their addiction to speed that reminded her very much of, of her youthful experiences as an alcoholic. Namely that you're sort of Life speeds up, you feel overwhelmed, you think that going faster has got to be the solution, right? If you go even faster, then you can cope with the, all this rush of incoming information, incoming opportunities, whatever it is. Um, so you go faster, but then you find that actually that's just increased the, the speed of everything and now you need to go faster still. And it's a sort of, it's a spiral and you crash. There's controversy about talking about addiction, whether it should be kept as a sort of strictly kind of medical idea. But I think that's really 
it resonates with me because I feel like it's very tempting in this in this world that feels like there's so much stuff to stay on top of and it moves at such a tempo. There is this notion that like the only solution is for you to go even faster than it to be able to encompass all of that. And this is this is not going to work uh, because you're never going to be able to, you know, there is an infinite supply, right? There's an effectively infinite number of emails you could receive, um, demands your boss could make, uh, opportunities you could pursue, businesses you could start, whatever. So getting faster at going through an infinite supply, you don't, you don't get to the end of that because it's infinite. So Stephanie Brown's advice to her clients, and I think it's 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 very useful, is that all of us who are sort of moving at this speed need to experiment a little bit with like what it feels like to just slow down to the speed that things take and say, you know what, I'm, I'm, if I'm going to read this novel and it takes my time and it takes, I need to look, read slowly and focus. I'm just going to like, yeah, it's not going to feel great at first, right? Because we are wired for racing through things and it doesn't feel great at first, but it is a path to a much deeper kind of engagement with the world. One of the things I do in the book is I write about um, this exercise that I did that is recommended by an art historian at Harvard University who I went to interview. Who She has all her students choose a painting and go and look at it for three hours. Like sit on, sit on a little bench, whatever, and just look at that painting for three hours. Take notes if you want, but you're not allowed to get up. <laughs> and... She knows it's like it's, it's, it's completely insane for almost anybody today to envisage doing something like that for for three hours, but that's why she that's why she suggests it. And you know, for the first hour, it's incredibly uncomfortable because you're not in charge anymore. You can't race through the day in the way that you were accustomed to doing. But it is so useful because getting through that discomfort to what lies on the other side is is so empowering. I think patience is really a kind of a superpower in the modern in the modern world. And in the context of a painting, what happens is you literally see things in the painting that you hadn't seen in the first 45 minutes. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. In the context of work, creative work, business, I think it's more just that like when everyone is racing as fast as they are today, there's actually real power in being able to resist that and let things take the time they take and think about something for a few more days if that's what it takes. Like you actually can have more success that way as well as feel less like a headless chicken. Is there a role of impatience though? Is there a role somewhere in life for impatience? It depends how you define it, right? So in the book, I'm talking about impatience as as wanting things to go faster than you can have them go. So then I'd say like, no, there's never any, even if you're sort of... um, driving somebody to the hospital because they're going into labor or something, right? I mean, it's like, you should do that really fast. You should be <laughs> urgent. You should you should pr- prioritize that. And you should, you know, go as, you should drive as fast as is practical. But even then, it's probably not worth feeling frustrated that you're stuck in traffic or something, right? I mean, it's so if impatience is that kind of frustration at the fact that you have limited control over how fast the world goes, how fast something happens, then no. I mean, it's it's just wild, right? We now are much more impatient. Like if a web page takes five seconds to load, like you can feel it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Whereas if somebody says, yeah, I'll put that stuff in the mail and you'll get it in three days, you're like, that's fine, right? It's, it's, Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, all right. The mail? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Those of us who still What's use... What's that like, mean? Yeah, right. But like that... 
the, the, the faster things get, the more offensive it is when they still only take a few seconds, like when there's a few seconds delay. Um, if we're using the word in another way to mean uh, having a sort of hunger for things to change in your life or change in society, you know, you're not, not willing to sort of sit around and be a, be a doormat while things, uh, when you could change things, then sure. Uh, I think that's a different kind of impatience and I'm sure it has a role. In your book, you talk about embracing radical incrementalism. What does that mean for you? This is the idea that there are contexts where um, really being willing to make progress on the basis of little and often, right? Kind of gradual progress to do a tiny bit at a time and not kind of binging on the things you're trying to achieve can be really powerful. Um, again, I'm sorry to keep coming back to writing as an example, but the the work that I'm drawing on there from a, a psychologist called Robert Boyce, who studied um, academics who write and figured, trying to figure out like, who are the ones who actually get a ton of papers published and a ton of books written? And who are the ones who get mired in um, like procrastination and paralysis? And he found that the, the really productive people in that sphere were the ones who made writing a um, a modest part of their daily life, right? It occupied like a couple of hours maybe, as opposed to the ones who made it into this huge thing that then became very intimidating and they got all sorts of like psychodramas going on with it because it was something they were willing to sort of do for a little bit, leave aside, come back to. And I think this applies to, especially applies to anything that is like brain work, but I think it applies to pretty much all all kinds of endeavor, right? There's often a huge benefit in being willing to say, well, I'm going to work on this for a tiny amount of time today and I'm going to stop even if I'm on a roll, right? When my time is up, I'm going to stop and then I'm going to come back. It makes it something that you can sustain day after day after day. If you do the opposite of incrementalism, right? If you give this, if you give this sort of absolutely center stage in your life, then if it goes well, great. But if it doesn't go well, it becomes this kind of huge, intimidating uh, thing. And I've found that, you know, if I'm working on a book, say, really sort of almost embarrassingly small work days on it, regularly done day after day after day, so much more productive, like in terms of the actual output. What about um, deadlines though? Because when I wrote my book, I think this de the deadline of having to send it to the publisher just hung over me and was like forcing me to, okay, Steve, today you have to write three, you know, 3,000 words. Yeah, I think deadlines have their role. Right. And I, you know, I would have got nowhere without deadlines in newspapers because they sort of kept, they sort of helped me sort of bust through perfectionism and stuff because mm. it was just literally, you know, it's, I did these things on a, I would write these kind of features for The Guardian where I had to like, um, that the idea came to me or was given to me at uh, like 10.30 in the morning and 5 p.m. they needed a two and a half thousand word researched article. You'd just be like, okay, I've just got to do it. But, um, in a way, I'm sort of training myself out of that now. And I think that to, to make, it, it, it isn't a, it's perfectly okay and it's fine, but, but, it, but it isn't sustainable. I think that, you know, the, the, to really over the long haul be able to do something like, like writing I've found requires that I have uh, acquired this ability for sort of dogged persistence rather than, you know, cruising to the, to the deadline. Um, Another topic that people hate talking about, or that at least it seems to make people really uncomfortable, and I sometimes I just bring up the conversation because I like to see 
I find the the, the I find the reaction to be <laughs> What's really. Coming? Well, I, I, find out. Um, I find the reaction to be really fascinating. Is this idea which you talk about, which is that we need to embrace our like relative irrelevance. Oh yeah, in the world. And yeah. when I say this to people, you can see it sometimes shattering something in them. The idea that they don't matter mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of the universe, mm-hmm. they really don't matter. What like? Why is what is the upside of embracing my own irrelevance? This idea, that, and do I matter, Oliver? Depends what you mean by matter. Do I matter in the in the grand scheme of the universe? I don't really think any of us. I think. I mean. I think. I mean. What I'm. What I want to say about this is, if you adopt a cosmic timescale, right? If you love the history of like the cosmos, or even just the planet, like no human life. Uh, or even anything that is done in a human life, you know, almost nothing will outlive us. And the things that do outlive us, like, you know, people inventing great scientific breakthroughs or something, even then, the the period that these have been relevant, if you look at the cosmos, is still like a tiny blink of an eye. Um, so I think there is a sort of inbuilt bias that most of us have, not not just the ones who are megalomaniacs, but almost all of us, to to think sort of subliminally of history as having led up to like our bit of history, right? And then to think of the decisions that we take and the things that we're doing as fundamentally the most important things that are going on in that bit of history. And that on some level we probably have to, right? Just to sort of short, to, to be able to like get up in the morning. You, it's not, you can't think of yourself as this kind of tiny pinprick of light in the middle of eons of darkness of the cosmos from the big bang to the you know to 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 when the the universe ends or whatever but actually you can really get bogged down in that you can really be like well you can spend a long time mired in indecision about things because you've built the stakes up in your head to an enormous degree you can really get sort of depressed about whether you can really have an impact on things because it has to be something that lives for millennia after you're gone or something. And when you realise how little most of it's going to matter quite soon, some people do go down that into like despair and horror. But but I think that is a reason to be like, why not take the risk? Like, why not do the bold things? It's like the stakes are a lot lower than you thought. The universe doesn't really care. Um, You don't need to worry about whether you're fulfilling your purpose that the universe had laid down for you because there kind of isn't one. And that's actually, a, it's liberating, as I keep saying. And you know, it's a reason to, it's a reason to sort of experimentally do the things that seem to you like the, 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 the coolest things to do. Then what you can do is you can, you can use a definition of mattering according to which so much that we do matters, right? Because I think it's difficult for people to remember that like, I don't know, I don't want to use a definition of a meaningful life that rules out some very mundane things like caring for a sick relative, cooking nutritious meals for your kids, making your neighborhood a slightly more beautiful place to live in. Like we don't want a definition of the meaning of of meaningful lives that says none of those things are meaningful, surely. Um, And so, yeah, I can imagine that it's an interesting issue for sort of people who people who look up to you specifically, for example, thinking that thinking that it's actually like they've got to emulate you in order mm. to be doing something meaningful rather than be inspired by you, which is a different, which is a different point, right? Because actually very, very everyday mundane things can be 
meaningful. And it's quite possible that the most fulfilled people on the planet are precisely the ones you never hear from because they're doing low profile things. And then, you know, I have this theory, maybe it's an, maybe it's insulting to you, this theory, but I have this theory that like the more of a public profile someone has, and I have a modest one, so it applies to me too, but like, that's probably like to that degree is like, they're screwed up in some way because they have, <laughs> they have some problem with not being ordinary. And then, you know, the Hollywood A-list, those people are probably the most messed up. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it, it definitely begets more problems. I, I noticed that this week. I had a journalist email me saying that five years ago, one of your ex-employees says your dog did a poop in the office and you didn't pick it up. And I thought, fucking hell. <laughs> This is what my life has become. <laughs> no, ge- genuinely. And I, I've, right. I was like, ponder- I've been pondering it ever since I received that email that now that like my life is of somewhat public interest, it means everything, every like fault I might've made or didn't make um, is now, I'm now going to be like scrutinized for, and mm-hmm. I'm now going to have to justify mm-hmm. because if I don't, then my life could be canceled, Right, which is a tough bar to live by. And one I wish I didn't have to live by, to be honest, but um, it, it is fascinating because if I'd said that, you know, our, our own death and irrelevance could be a motivating force, <laughs> it doesn't appear on the surface that, that that makes sense. But I completely agree that my own, fin- like the finality of my life and my own irrelevance are two things that liberate me from getting caught up in the idea that a comment on Instagram matters or how my hair is matters. And that hopefully liberates me enough to go in the pursuit of things that do provide me with my own subjective meaning in life. So Yeah, and that help other people and lift other people up, right? It's not that it, when I talk, I talk in the book about cosmic insignificance and I sort of mean that, right? It's like from the perspective of the cosmos, no, it doesn't matter. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It can matter to people here today, mm. you know. One of the things we do in this podcast, a longstanding tradition, is we ask people who've just come in to leave a question for the next guest. So the last guest leaves a question for the next guest. Before I do that, in the back of your book, you you, pon- you leave the reader five questions for them to ponder. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you one of your own questions from the five that you left. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go for question four. In which areas of your life are you still holding back until you feel like you know what you're doing? Hmm. Yeah, this is definitely one that speaks to me. I mean, obviously I obviously I put the questions in because they speak to me, but like this is this difficulty that I think we all have, but I really have had with realizing that like on some level, everyone is winging it. So it sort of speaks to imposter syndrome and things like that and, 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 uh, and, and not feeling, not launching into things until you feel that you're, that you're ready. Recently, since the book was out, I've been giving more sort of talks and speeches than I ha- ever have done in my life before. And, um, you know, I've sort of been forced into not holding back on that because the invitations come in and I say yes to them. And then it's like, oh my God, I got to do this. That is something where I feel perpetually unready. Um, and if it was up to me, I would, uh, probably have left it you know some more I mean it was up to me but like if I'd felt that it was up to me I would have left it some more years to sort of get really good at doing that and and uh uh you know and I and I and I'm not I'm not ready but it seems to be going okay um I kind of evaded that question by by saying by by giving you an example of something where I'm not holding back because I'm actually doing them but um 
I think that answer was really does it, good. Does it fact. count? Okay. No, it does. All it right, does okay. count. And I, it really speaks to, because I also believe that had been of your own choice to get really good before you do it, you probably never would have done it. Right. Which is what most people, it's like the trap of the mind that I will launch my business when I have some time or I will launch it when I am, I've learned something, but we never, there's never a perfect time. So unfortunately we're forced into picking an imperfect time. Yeah. And now is always an imperfect time. So mm -hmm. I always try and implore people on that basis to do the thing that they think the perfect day will enable. Um, now to ask you the question that our previous guest did leave. Oh, okay. So I never read it until I, until I open the book. Um, they have good handwriting, so I can read this one. Do you do enough to keep learning? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, no, I, I, there are definitely, I, I, I definitely aspire to make more space in my days for, especially for reading why uh because it gets squeezed out by by doing things related to writing and books it actually gets hard to sort of keep that section of of time for just sort of the exploration of uh ideas in in that way on the other hand i want to say that things like uh becoming a parent even things like moving back from New York to the UK, like there are certain ways in which you learn that are not like book-based learning and you just sort of are dragged forwards in your education, whether you mm. like it or not. And I think in those ways, it's more a question of seeing what you're being taught uh, and that you are learning than, than needing to make more time for learning. But that's an interesting question. But also in your being pulled into speaking more and all that. Yeah, you, absolutely. New skills that you have to sort of... You're doing that. Do, yeah, no, totally. But I, it is But it is just the honest answer is it is something that I, I don't feel sort of satisfied about in terms of my, the apportionment of my, of my time. What about moment. stuff like this and coming here today? How did no, you feel this is, I love this kind of conversation. And, um, and I think it, obviously you learn from it completely. Um, but uh, so I think what I'm talking about is sort of, yeah, I guess it is the. I guess it is exposing myself to new avenues of thinking that are not sort of jumping off from things that I've already thought about. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, this kind of conversation is great. Well, thank you, and thank you for writing such a brilliant book. One that I feel like is going to liberate people from a lot of bullshit that's holding them back in many, many ways, from stress to anxiety to feelings of inadequacy because we're trying to live up to a social expectation that is un unachievable. And I think. I know for a fact that based on the questions I get asked a lot in my DMs, that my audience should read this book. So um, I implore them to do so because also the way that you write is from such a nuanced human perspective, which is um, avoiding the like cheap answers or the binary um, answers to, to some of the big questions about life, productivity, efficiency and everything um, that plagues us in the modern world. So thank you for writing such a great book. Thank you for your time as well. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.